When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today we're talking to Stephen Kayak about his film Scott Walker, 30 Century Man. And I'm pretty sure this is not the only time we're going to chat with Stephen, hopefully, as he has gone on to make documentaries about the Rolling Stones, Jocko Pastorius, X in Japan, Leonard Skinner, Judy Garland, and more. His most recent film, Shoplifters of the World, based on the music of the Smiths, was a return to narrative. He's done a lot, and this is just the tip of the iceberg of his directing work over the last 20 years. We're very excited to talk to him today about his 2007 documentary, Scott Walker. Welcome, Stephen. Hello, Boston. Hello, Stephen. <laughs> How's it going? It's going good. Um, we also welcome back an old friend and collaborator and a movie doc fan whom you know, Sonia Collarot. Welcome back, Sonia. Hi. I am so excited for this. I've been dying to talk to Stephen. So I will mention as a little caveat that I know Stephen Kayak because of this film and Scott Walker. So I worked as a publicist at the time at Beggars and 4AD, and I did press for the album, The Drift, that Scott is making throughout this movie. We were just talking about when I started listening to Scott Walker, and I can't remember, but I was a fangirl for a while before this. And so working on this record and the subsequent ones was a real honor for me, and it was great to get to know Stephen through it. Scott Walker is just one of those artists where it's just the feeling of being able to spread the gospel of his music was so special. And Stephen, I can't even imagine what that was like for you on such a higher level. It was crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, it really was not really my first, but I mean, it was among the very first real passion projects that I undertook. And it took a long time to do, kind of like the decade-long gaps between Scott Walker albums. We really had to just dig in and push it uphill it was an incredible honor. I mean, it was it's probably one of the, the, the richest experiences I've had making a film. It was so early, but it still resonates, you know, and it's just continued to build bridges with other artists who were in the film. And we stayed very close with Scott's management and it became a bit like a family, you know, and and of course, we lost him a couple of years ago, sadly. And uh, it was a real heartbreaker, but we were able to, you know, be among a small group of people who were able to say goodbye to him. Yeah, it really, it, it was a life-changing experience. Well, I have to admit, for the second documentary in a row, I found myself watching a film on a musician or a band that I knew little to nothing about. And Sonia told me I, I need to watch this film, and it, it was a beautiful movie. 
And now here we are. So let me ask you a question. How and when did you learn of Scott Walker and his music? And how did that lead to this documentary? When did I discover Scott Walker? I think it was it was in the 90s, like in around like around 90, 91. I think Fontana started to reissue the solo records from the 60s. So you had one, two, three, four. And then they did a compilation called Boy Child, which was the best of the kind of 67 to 70 period, focusing on his own songwriting. But I think the, the actual first hit was, I, I think it was, was a friend in San Francisco. I was living there after college at Boston University. I moved out to uh, the Bay Area and a friend had an experimental theater in a warehouse in Soma and just popped on. We were sitting there probably getting high or drinking or whatever. And it was dark and they were just kind of, the theater was empty. And he put the old man's back again on the big sound system and just cranked it. And I, I'll never forget. I mean, I remember just being like kind of nailed to the spot by that voice and the imagery and the sound and the production. Everything was just like, what the hell am I listening to? And I was a bit of a 80s snob at the time. And I wasn't really into 60s music. I, I was raised in the 70s and 80s and was a total new waiver and thought the world began and ended with the cure and new order like an idiot. And I, this is a friend of mine who was always trying to like turn me on to bizarro old 60s psychedelia and I was having none of it but this was something different it was like a bottomless pit kind of like opened up in front of me <laughs> and yeah that was it and then he had some of the cds and we just started listening on loops you know and it turned out a little click of those kind of San Francisco musician theater weirdos that we were hanging out with everyone kind of was into it like they had, everyone had bought the cds and so we'd just be at parties drinking and eating and Scott too would be blasting in the corner and then a drunk sing-along to best of both worlds would start up. You know what I mean? I thought, well, this is just magnificent. And I just got obsessed with those records and couldn't get enough. It, it was, I, I just thought everyone must know who this guy is. You know I mean? It was so popular in this little circle of people, but it really, it just went deep at that moment, you know, and it, it never let its un, unloosened its grip. Shall we say it was, it was intense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's funny, those music guides are so important when you're younger. And, and uh, when you get a hold of one that's good and takes you into these worlds, it's, you know, a treasure, really. And Stephen, how did how did your fandom of Scott lead to the documentary? Yeah, well, you know, that that first that first contact was like 91 two, And so then, right, we flash forward to say 95. And oh, my God, he's got another album. It was even hard to find some of the stuff in in between like i i wasn't quite aware of climate of hunter you know what i mean he was he was still such a cult figure but then all of a sudden tilt pops out of nowhere it was just a, a total shocker because you know it's so it's so different um but then again it's not i mean that's the thing is i think there's such a continuity in the body of work if you really look at his writing and how it moves through the decades um no, but it was like, I, I eventually got my hands on that. And then I think, oh, there was this interim record, <laughs> Climate. And oh, I'm starting digging up all the Walker Brothers. And then you discover the Night Flights record. And you just start filling in the gaps. And you realize it's just such this diverse and rich and very, very weird body of work. But no, Tilt blew my head off. Um, I couldn't believe it. And it just, it lodged in there. Just like, this is so, well, the first song is dedicated to Pasolini, for God's sake. So it's like, this is movie music this is so 
breathtaking and widescreen. And it always kind of had been. And I was just starting to uh, make films. And it just always, I just always thought this, I, I would love to make a movie with this stuff. Like, is it a script? Is it a musical? Like, I didn't know what it was. I just thought it's so important to me. I, I need to figure out a way to engage with it. And then another eight or so years go by and there's rumblings that he's actually going to make another record. And by this time I had like two films under my belt trying to figure out what was next. And I just thought, that's it. It's got to be Scott Walker. Like this could be the last album he ever makes, <laughs> Lord forbid, but at one every decade, he's getting up there. No one's to my knowledge ever attempted it. Let's try it. This ha it has to be now. Like, and that I just, I started working on it. And then we, you know, eight or nine years later, we had a movie. <laughs> so I actually think it was maybe more like seven to eight. But yeah, it took, it took a long damn time. I'm glad you made this movie. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful film and it's a wonderful document of Scott and obviously so much more meaningful now that he has unfortunately passed away. Going back to the beginning though, like how did you go about trying it? Did you have to, how did you get him to agree to it? I mean, he's so private that I imagine you had to, did you have to talk him into it? What was the process with getting him and managers to agree on it? It, it was it was a feat. I mean, I granted, I'd only done one little low-budget documentary before that called Cinemania, you know, which was thankfully a little festival favorite, so that was nice. But who was I? I was nobody. And you can't, at the time, like, Google Scott Walker contact. <laughs> you know what I mean? Good luck. You just, there was no way. I, I somehow managed to find a fax number online for Charles Nugis Fancy, who was his manager. Looked and looked and looked was a fax number. So I started dialing it and changing one digit at the end, hoping that maybe something would happen. And it did. A phone rang and it was him. <laughs> and Charles picked up one day and we had a very brief little chat. He gave me his email address and said, well, sure, send me your proposal. Let me know what you want to do. Or maybe I actually faxed him something. This was, I mean, <laughs> we're talking the mid to late 90s. Um and I didn't hear anything, but I just kept chipping away and would call again. And and, and I, the, the edit of Cinemania took me to Berlin. So I made sure to carve out a little trip to the UK in the way. And I said, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'd love to meet you and talk about this more. And I just kept making little steps towards it. And I think eventually they just sort of opened the door a little bit and said, well, like, we'll entertain this. Let's see what you got. And then it was a process of building a team around it based on what I knew about him. Grant G, right? He made meeting people as easy. I knew that he had shot some stuff for them when Scott did the Meltdown Festival and they really liked Grant. So I signed Grant up. I'm like, you're going to shoot this with me. You're going to be in my collaborator. He was, he was more than happy to join. Graham Wood, founder of Tomato, right? Graphic design legend had done some work on a song for Tilt. I said, well, let me get Graham. Let's get him signed up to be involved and just slowly like built a little cabal of collaborators that I knew would make him feel comfortable. And once I had all that sort of comfortably in place, we kind of pushed forward and they eventually gave us a yes. So it took a while. That's smart. Your film points out he, he was like a Garbo-esque character. And if he didn't want to be seen, he wasn't seen. But he, he's just so incredibly straightforward and honest in your film. And that, that was really interesting to watch. 
the interview was the very last thing we ever shot. And I think I had about 45 minutes tops with him. I mean, I'll sit people down for hours and do interviews and multiple rounds. This was like, you got maybe an hour. Don't get too personal now or he'll like withdraw back into his shell. Yeah. And it was the, we had almost cut the entire movie and left holes where we thought, okay, he could, he could pop up here, 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 and here. Let's see what happens. Again, they, they let us creep into the studio just a little bit. All told, I had 45 minutes of interview, maybe two days in the studio with him. And I was losing my mind. This is like supposedly the definitive epic Scott Walker documentary of all time. I'm like, I need to be there every day that he's recording, you know? And But they were really smart about the kind of access we got as well. They just kept saying, well, we'll let you know when it will be good for camera. And I just thought, everything's going to be good for camera. What are you talking about? But, you know, then we show up and it's like the wooden cube and the meat. So like, uh, okay, yeah, this is good for camera. <laughs> Thank you very much. But yeah, he was great. I mean, he was a little nervous, but I had already had a couple pints um, on the way over. So I was loose. Yeah, we had a really nice chat. I don't know. I think by that point, he knew we were what we were up to. You know, he had hung out with us in the studio. He had, they had shown him some of the film already. Like we had, we made him comfortable enough to think, all right, he knew he wasn't getting himself stuck into something that was going to paint him in a bad light or whatever. It was, it was a sympathetic experience. And uh, I just wish I had a couple more hours, but it was fine. It came off great. And he was, he was ready to talk. Yeah. Sympathetic's a good word. Yeah. And I think Steve, I really like how you described him Garbo-esque. I think it's, it's pretty good, a good way to describe him. But it was funny when I did press for him, I didn't get that many interview requests because people just assumed immediately that he just would never do an interview. And I was like, no, he does. Like, do you want to talk to him? And he was, it was pleasant and grateful to be speaking to these people that I think really had an affinity for his entire career and were knowledgeable about him. In my world, he's a superstar. He still flies under the radar, I think probably a little less so now. Um, he's not as unknown as somebody like Jabriath, but despite how famous the Walker brothers were, he remains a bit of a cult hero. Did you have a goal in your film to make more people aware of him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was not the number one reason, but yeah, it was like spreading the gospel. It's like my little catchphrase, and it's a bit of a, a joke now, but I mean, I, I literally always think of the movies as mixtapes. You know what I mean? I'm like, I was at Dork. I'm like, I want to turn you on. I want to give someone a, an album that's like, and make, you know, it's the, the guy people usually hate, like, oh, he's going to make me listen to Scott Walker. Oh, God. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I wanted to, you know, and I've, I've, I've minted a few fans along the way um, among my set of friends, sometimes much to the dismay of their roommates, you know, um, dish bosh clanging away in the background. Um, yeah, no, it was very much like the world needs to know. I mean, you know, Julian Cope compiled that album in the 80s of his favorite Scott Walker songs. We talk about it in the film, you know, the albums at that point were out of print. He was really lost to the public's consciousness. And Cope, being a huge fan, just put out this record. And he's like, you know, because he had been, Scott had been sort of tarnished with all that M.O.R. sort of cheesy housewife pop, like playing the Blackpool scene. You know, he he had kind of fallen into that zone with a lot of the cheesy covers and, and stuff that maybe 
didn't seem as cool, especially hitting into the late 70s, my late 60s and early 70s, when he really just faded away. But Cope, like, called the best of his songwriting and put it on this album, which had no artwork. It was really very post-punk in its presentation. And it caught fire amongst a new generation of people, all of most of whom were in the movie. You know, it's like that set of, of musician who then discovered him, reevaluated, and just took his lessons on board. So, yeah, but that happened so long ago. There hadn't really been another, you know, the Fontana reissues did, did a lot to like rekindle people's awareness. But again, I think he still was very much living in a cult space. And especially with this new work turning in such a different direction, it was. I don't know, I think it was really important to kind of put the career, like to align all the different parts of him and show people like this amazing trajectory. Because it really, I think, you know, it came out maybe a year or so after The Drift. And The Drift itself you did a phenomenal job on the PR side because that thing got a lot of acclaim. It was like album of the month or something in The Guardian. I mean, it really like, it really hit a new high for him. And then the film came out and we, we got great exposure on the UK, you know, it debuted in Berlin and it just, it just kept the sales full again and it just propelled him. And he was very pleased by all of it, you know, and then to our great delight, he, keep, he kept working. You're listening to all music podcasts, a member of Pantheon media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Stephen Kayak. He's the director of Scott Walker, 30 Century Man. And you mentioned Julian Cope, and there's a lot of great musicians, you know, from a really wide spectrum in the film who are huge fans. Johnny Marr, Bowie and Eno, Sting, Radiohead, you know, just a ton of people. How did you find out that these were fans and how did you reach out to these people? You sort of just knew it. Like they would all, a lot of them were all on record as being fans and i had a great uh, music supervisor at the time she was based in the uk and had worked with a lot of these people so she just kind of had her ear to the ground and knew who was 
a devotee, but I mean, we, we kind of just rounded up the usual suspects, to be honest with you. And you could really just figure out from various things people would say in interviews and you go, oh, there's one, grab it, grab him, grab her, whoever, just let's collect them all. To be fair, I do look back at the film and I think there are, just, there are a little too, few too many of them. I get a bit annoyed with the parade of talking heads, but in a way this, this was important because he was such an outlier. They were all like just the famous breadcrumbs leading towards him but it, it all they all made sense too like everyone's there for a really specific reason so yeah it was it was just another case of you just get someone who knows how to work that circuit and just start calling managers and agents and showing up at shows and cornering people and <laughs> I'm, I'm just a, I'm a relentless pest when it comes to that sort of thing so yeah I don't think there's too many people in it. It's not as many as the Sparks doc. So. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> they so, deserve it too. Yeah. And speaking of artists that are underrated within their home country too, it's kind of an interesting trajectory for the both of them. Speaking of people in the film, let's talk about the credit you can't miss, executive producer David Bowie. Um, as you make it super clear in the film and is clear to people that love Scott, which is that, David Bowie loved Scott Walker. So did you conduct the interview with him or was it older? It's a little bit hard to tell. What did his being an executive producer mean for this film? Oh, I did that interview. You bet I did. I wasn't going to miss that one. Yeah, no, it, it took almost as long to get that underway as it did to actually make the movie and get Scott involved in it. It was just, you know, an incredible uphill battle. But when, you know, he realized that we were legit and it was, you know, Scott was involved and he is an, a massive fan. I mean, I we came to him or I came to him with just, you know, like pick two of three things, your name, an interview and money. And he picked not money. Um, <laughs> but uh, the name kicked open again. It just it, it really helped kick the door open. It helped with other artists. Um, it just helped other finance, you know, financiers get involved in distribution. It was just, you know, he needed it. And it, he was our godfather, you know, and it was legit, like, fanboy love. He really, really loved Scott and is generous with his admiration. And, you know, the, the influence flows both ways. You know, I mean, Scott was a bit older and he, he, he truly did show Bowie the way when it came to things like Jacques Brel and just a certain sort of sonic presentation of a certain kind of ballad or a certain sound. I mean, he, he really looked up to him and admired him. Yeah. I mean, it really, it was just, it was just great to, to, to sit him down and, and get into it. Despite the fact that he's wearing the craziest uh, Tommy Hilfiger polo shirt. You're like, really David Bowie? Um, <laughs> But no, he was just friendly and generous, and uh, it was incredible. And I mean, you know, he he provided help, like greasing the wheel again with other artists, and he viewed cuts and had a couple notes occasionally, and was really great. Couldn't really couldn't have done it without him. Sometimes I find myself going on YouTube and watching somebody filmed Scott Walker wishing David Bowie happy birthday. I love like that. You can see how emotional <laughs> David Bowie is. And sometimes I just watch it for fun. It's just so sweet. You can really feel the love there. Can you actually see him? Because I've only heard it. I don't know. You can there... see Bowie, but you can't, you know, and I think Scott's oh, there's an on the actual phone or something. Video of David? I didn't realize. Yeah. I've heard it. I have I have the audio. <laughs> Pretty sure there is. I'll send it to you. 
Yeah, because um, <laughs> I have heard that was one of the things. Somehow I came across that quite early on, and that that or I read about it, and it just was like that, he's got to top the movie. He's got to be. On, he's got. He's got to have his name on this thing and be involved. If he, if Scott means that much to him, uh, it's what does he say? He's like, oh, I've seen God in the window, and their birthdays <laughs> are a day apart. I mean, Scott's hilarious. He's like. So I'll see you on the other side of midnight. You know, it's just, it's, it's so cool. It was incredible. Really helped. I mean, we needed it. We needed to, again, like, we needed to broadcast the gospel of Scott to as many people as possible. And, and, and David really led the way. You know, as kind of a newcomer to his music, there was definitely the Stop Me On My Tracks moment. It was some of his later, Scott's later music, but I was listening to it and, you know, it just reminded me of the Berlin trilogy of Bowie, and that's my favorite period of him. And I was just like, oh my gosh. So I, I don't know who influenced who, but it was amazing. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, Scott was coming out of this really, like, well, the, the Walker brothers got back together mid, mid-70s mid or so, and, you know, they had a couple hits, but it was a bit flat. It was a bit like adult contemporary. The kids didn't care. And their little three album deal was fizzling. Like it says in the movie, it's just the basic story is they were about to just fade away again. And the last record was a chance to just pull out all the stops. And he's like, I just don't care anymore. I'm going to do something for me. And that's where you get the famous side one of Night Flights, that Walker Brothers record that has, you know, the electrician shut out Night Flights, which Bowie covers many years later. But it was all happening just after, you know, Bowie had already kind of unleashed low and heroes so it was all in the air and you know it says in the movie that like they got a copy of it and went oh my god <laughs> like what is this we're kind of work weirdly working in the same space in some ways and they were excited by it and i'm sure you know what they were doing and scott was clearly listening to what was happening in music at the time but it also does stand vastly apart you know yeah, maybe it was his chance to give back, you know. I mean, if Bowie took the inspiration of Jacques of the Jacques Brel records and turned it into something of his own, this was Scott absorbing the zeitgeist and doing something equally out there and, and specific. Yeah, it's a breathtaking body of work, right? Uh, that 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 period, you know, just those four songs he did. It was the beginning of something new, but of course, you know, it wasn't like a new album every year. He he continued to just drift away into obscurity and land another album you know many years later that was also chilling and icy and kind of new wavy and but very much a part of what was happening one of i think my favorite things in the movie is how you have people listening to scott and you're filming filming them doing that and i think it's really effective was that a conscious theme or did you film one person and then decide to keep doing it how did that happen? And what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, no, uh, it was very deliberate. I mean, we, we we kept thinking like, we have to do something a little bit different with our interviews if we can. And we just came up with the idea of listening heads as opposed to talking heads, which of course we have, but like we just wanted to travel to every interview with our little portable record player and our stack of Scott vinyl and have people pick things and just look through the records. And we wanted to try to make it tactile and just see what happened. And it was nice. And it turned out like, oh, let's craft a whole little sequence here. And it was, it comes in the film kind of right as we're discussing that Julian Cope thing. And so it was people of that generation kind of listening and concentrating and discovering again. 
as they would have at the time. So yeah, it was nice. It was simple, but it just, it, it makes it just different enough. And it lets, uh, the idea was just to let the audience in. So like you yourself were just hanging out listening to records with, you know, Johnny Marr and Dave Bowie and Goldfrapp and Dot Allison and all these people, you know, just let's just have a listening party. Yeah, I totally agree with Sonia on this. I mean, you can just see the passion and the response in their faces. And it's just fascinating to watch, you know, and, uh, you know, it's it's unbelievable. I also want to give a quick shout out because I'm not the one who said it, but your your narrator is fantastic. I don't know what her story is, but, you know, some of the um, the, the things that she brought in where she's talking about Walker and, and, you know, she tells the story, he demolishes the teen idol he was and went on a walkabout to the outer limits. I mean, that's just brilliant and, and so perfect for the movie. Yeah, she's great. That was another late breaking addition, kind of partly because we only had 45 minutes with him we, and we had so much ground to cover. We just thought, oh shit, we need to do a voiceover. Let's just do it like to connect the dots, to speed the plot along, to give context. And then we thought, well, if we're going to do it, let's write it in such a way that it's a little arch, a little cheeky, a little poetic, but it's just, it's aware of itself. And my producer, Mia Bays, who's an amazing human being, who was now, congratulations, running the uh, BFI Film Fund and had previously founded Bird's Eye View to promote women in film and filmmaking in the UK, Total Force of Nature, uh, was friends with uh, Sarah Kesselman, who's a legendary actress. She was in uh, this crazy cult sci-fi film, Zardos, back in the day. Mm. I think John Borman directed that. The Sean Connery one, right? Yes. Um, yes. She's a legend. And she was doing a lot more theater. And they had, I can't remember if they had worked on a short. Anyway, we knew, we knew her. And uh, she was just perfect. You know, that plummy sort of British proper VO, but with a with a total wink. Yeah, she was she was excellent. It was nice that it landed like that because we I just didn't want it to be too serious or you know, some some VO can just suck. <laughs> but yeah, she she was fabulous. Another just brilliant addition. Like she was a real actress, like a real and she, you know, she remembered the whole that she was of the sixties. And had a real vibe. Um, so, yeah, she was cool. So I think if there's one thing that people agree on about Scott is that his music, especially in the later years, is just on this other level. There is, I don't think, anything like it at all. It's so dissonant and, you know, it's it's weird. <laughs> do, you think, <laughs> do you think that there are any artists working today that are taking the reins or, like, you know, one might call uh, Scott Walker-esque in terms of what kind of music they're making? It's always a hard question because I feel like, I mean, I'm always listening to new stuff and trying to keep my ear open for what's happening on the outer limits. And I, I don't know. I, I haven't quite, I mean, nothing nothing has blew my world open quite like that. The thing is, like, he just, he took, like, the extreme avant-garde, but, like, put like a put words on it you know what i mean he put it in in specific like because he would always say like that that that, that thing where like some critics said, well they're not songs anymore and he went well i think they're songs and he's right i mean he takes the chaos and puts it into a it's a it's a could be a 12 long minute song but it's still a song there's like a man singing there's words 
there's some strange story being told. You may never figure out what it is, but he's telling it to you. I think some people might have pieces of it, you know, but have, has anyone like found the synthesis of that kind of extremity and classicism? I don't know, you know, I mean, yeah, I hear a lot of it stuff might... that's like extreme noise and oh, I like that, but there's no yeah. structure or it's, you know, it's spoken word or it's minimal, but doesn't have the sonic sort of intensity or, I don't know. I just, there's, he's, it's, you know, I don't know if you know, he, before he died, he put out a book called Sundog that was a collection of lyrics that included five or six new pieces that were meant to be what he was working on next, you know? And it's like reading them just as words, it's like, okay, they're really odd. I can't parse out what's going on, but oh, it's so heartbreaking because you think like it needed that other side of him. It needed that sonic backdrop. It needed the stage that he was going to set to set those things into, you know, who else could do that? Yeah, I mean, he made that album with Sun, which I think was brilliant. Oh, incredible. Was so good. And I think, you know, maybe maybe a comparison would really be, you know, somebody like Soundtrack for Suspiria, which is like at times oh, yeah. similarly orchestral and just dark and weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's soundtrack um, music. I mean, it has no yeah, context yeah. other than just being sound for a movie. I mean, like the world, the sonic world is there. Like, great, let's elevate. You know, it's like, who who's writing like that? And who's thinking like that? And who's singing like that? Like it's, <laughs> even though he claimed that the later work, he was kind of trying to, get away from the baritone croon because he wanted you to quote pay attention right <laughs> and if i sing in a way that's slightly annoying to you you're going to listen harder to what i'm saying some people may have disagreed with him and just said oh god we just croon again you know just get in there man <laughs> it's hard for me to think like i love perfume genius i think there's something of an outlier about him like they're not the most comfortable song sometimes and i really like i like how he creates is you know the, the the visual world of the music is really unique is it as avant-garde and abrasive and boundary pushing maybe not but i don't know it's there's just nobody <laughs> there's nobody he was one of a kind so for the people unfamiliar with his work where would you point them to start i mean the obviously the walker brothers are a whole different thing you know very 60s pop and then like you said this stuff is very abstract well, you know, he was writing stuff all along the way with the Walker Brothers. So, I, I mean, honestly, it just, it depends on your level of commitment, to be honest with you. <laughs> if you want to go full on, there's an absolutely massively cool box set called Scott Walker in Five Easy Pieces. Callie Callaman, I believe, the A&R guy who was at Fontana that signed him for Tilt was in charge of compiling. It's so awesome because it's themed. He gives you like five discs that go from the Walker Brothers all the way up through Tilt. And in chronological order, each disc is, but they're each themed. So one is, he calls like the greatest hits, you know, one is like Scott on screen, which is all his songs for movies. And then there's Where's the Girl is one. It's all sort of like Scott's version of love songs or whatever. But, you know, along the way you get, gothic anthems from the walker brothers like archangel all the way through to like track three from climate of hunter you know which is like just this bizarre new wave sort of 
quote single that he put out in 84. No, it's really awesome. It's really rich and it's really, really well curated. And it gives you such a, a vast uh, look at the career. Otherwise, I just tell people, you know, trying to find Boy Child, it's like his own writing, one disc. Or just, uh, but I mean, honestly, people can just dial him up on freaking streamers now, can't they? <laughs> I don't know. It's, you know, if you want avant-garde noise, get Fish Bosh. If you want cr- croony, gorgeous, luscious 60s stuff, Scott 2 is a kink favorite of mine because it's got that awesome cover of Best of Both Worlds on it and some awesome Jacques Brel stuff. So, yeah, it's just depends on your taste level, really. I rep for Scott 4. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that kind of goes without saying. Do you have a favorite Scott Walker song? I mean, no. I know it's... <laughs> you know, no, it's impossible. Like at least 20, 30 favorite Scott Walker songs. Um, I I've do. just mentioned some of them. What's yours? <laughs> What's yours? My favorite is Get Behind Me. I mean, oh, yes. yes. If, if everybody in the world just listened to that song, like first, as soon as they wake up, it would just, can you imagine what a world we'd live in? It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful song. And it's also, you know, it's a little weird. It's mm-hmm. like, it, it's, a, it's, I love it. I just love that song. Kind of like, um, yeah, it's a little folky, a little rocky, a little mystic, <laughs> and it's got a message. He does, he's, he rarely comes at you with a message. It's always sort of at an angle. Remember, he said, like, I hate protest songs. I don't want someone to pick up a guitar and preach at me. <laughs> I want to tell me a story and make me think about what you're saying. So I'll be thinking about it years from now, as opposed to, like, hitting me on the head with it. So he always does. That's the thing. It's like those songs just stick in your brain. And you can turn them around forever and kind of never fully get to the other side of it. You know, that's what I think is so special about him. They definitely make you think, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm I'm out of my league here with you two, too, because I just learned of him. And I, I would point people to your movie uh, to learn about the songs, because I think the crafting of them is just incredible. And, you know, the in-studio stuff that you got is, is unbelievable. So uh, I'll have to... Uh, to, to listen to this again and pick up y'all's tips and uh, go back and listen to those. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of um, range in your music documentaries, you know, the Stones, Leonard Skinner, Judy Garland. What are you working on now? Um, I'm taking a bit of a break from the music stuff. And I, uh, like a, a year ago or so, we did a, a documentary series for HBO Max called Equal that was brought to us and it was about the struggle for lgbtq rights kind of in the years in america in the years kind of leading up to stonewall so it was nice to kind of tell those kinds of stories for a change in a way the judy garland was a bit of my gateway drug back over the rainbow (laughs) so uh, i'm actually doing a film now for hbo about rock hudson looking at the 80s and aids and the hollywood closet and sort of the double life and the dual symbol, the symbols of, you know, in his films and not the greatest quote actor, but one of the greatest movie stars of all time, who was a closeted gay man and just looking at the aftermath of his diagnosed death in 85 and all that stuff. And weirdly just has no musical kind of hook other than just we'll have a great composer. And we're also developing a little true crime thing on the side. I mean, I have a couple of music projects similar to Scott in a way that are just more like for me, 
that I'm cooking on the back burner, but nothing to really write home about at this time. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting trip and I needed to take a little break, but I'll never give it up. I mean, I love the form. I, I should have been in a band. I love <laughs> collecting music and all that stuff. And so, uh, yeah, we'll see. He, he, was, he set a high bar and I don't think I've ever hit it since. But, you know, <laughs> it's like his lessons are always sort of in the back of my head. Well, I want to thank you for coming on with us. Um, it was a fascinating movie. And, you know, as somebody who didn't know anything, I was, you know, I did, I, I was talking to Sonia before and I, I had to take a break, you know, I was just like, I need to put this down for a minute. And I came back to it and uh, I watched the movie twice, actually. And um, I tell you if, if you, if people want to have, you know, a whole film day between this movie, Judy Garland and Leonard Skinner, you can really cover a lot of ground right there. So I want to thank you, uh, Stephen and, uh, and Sonia as well for coming back on. And, uh, you know, she's a big fan of yours as well. So um, it was a lot of fun to, to chat with you. Yes. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thanks so much for, uh, keeping the Scott alive. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast Series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.